You're listening to Within Tolerance, a podcast for machinists by a machinist. I'm your host, Josh Hacko from NH Micro, and this week we have Dylan on the show. Welcome, Dylan. Hey, hey. Thanks, Josh, for stepping in part one of this episode. I really appreciate it. How does it feel to be on the other side of the seat? Truly bizarre. (laughs) (laughs) Hearing my intro read by you, even after we talked about it, very weird, but also great. So I appreciate it. Well, it's an honor to be here, Dylan, and thank you for asking me to, to help out. But for the listeners, this is Dylan's 200th episode of his podcast and massive. I mean, you guys should all be cheering in your cars and while you're working, give him a round of applause. Well done. 200 of the biggest, maybe biggest machining podcast on the, <laughs> in the internet. So thank you from all of us and well done. My pleasure and that, yeah, the biggest, I, I don't know about that, makes me incredibly uncomfortable to think about that, but <laughs> I do appreciate it for sure. Well, well, so we've got a bunch of questions from the Patreon listeners. Thank you for co-hosting. I wanted someone who, A, does this all the time, and B, we talk all the time. And so I thought that it would be a, a great back and forth. Absolutely. Well, we can dive into some of the questions. Um, Amazing questions and a lot of them. Maybe we can start with Spencer Webb. And he's he's brought in a question and said, how has your interviewing skill and experience helped you in your machining profession? Given your immaculate taste and tools, how is it that you stay so flat? (laughs) (laughs) Well, to get the second part out of the way first, of course, I use PFG stones. Actually, it's weird. It's one of those things that up until a few years ago, I had never heard of. And now I couldn't imagine doing my job without some sort of precision stones. Mm -hmm. It's bizarre. Like how so weird to me that that was so absent in all of my training. And now it's like ubiquitous. Like I touch a PFG stone 10 times a day. And it's Mm -hmm. like, oh, you know, jaws. Oh, I got to stone my soft jaws because I see that I cut into them a little bit or something. And it's like, yeah, uh, as far as interviewing skill and experience, A, that's very nice to say. I sometimes don't feel like I have any skill. I don't know if Spencer listens back to his episodes before he posts them, but I do. And it, 200 episodes in, and I'm still not 100% used to hearing my voice that much. And hmm. half the time, I think I've talked about it in past episodes, it's total... It's just terrible hearing yourself that much and then wondering why do people act, actually listen to me? <laughs> I don't know if you get that in your editing. Mm, absolutely. It's listening to yourself is like a, it's the sixth hell in Dante's Inferno. It's the last <laughs> thing I want to do. But from my end is, you know, it's great. Like you have a really calming presence, the, the, the types of questions and the format and how you approach your guests. It's all extremely professional and very easy to listen to. It's, a, it's always that fine line between like being overt and being sort of conversational and you, you straddle that line really well. So, I mean, I don't want this to be like uh, some sort of um, pity party fest or not. No, 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 right? not at all. Please, please. No, I couldn't take it. <laughs> But to answer the question more more directly, I think that everyone likes to talk about themselves. And because I talk to so many machinists and so many people in industry, 
it makes it very easy to become friends or be, become acquaintances with, with all these people. Mm. You know, I go to the easy tech council has a lot of mixers and things and getting people to open up about their business is really easy. If you know the right questions to ask, mm. but, you know, so many of us are just nerds at the end of the day that like to nerd out on our own business. And so mm. knowing how to poke those points of, you know, tell me about this, you know, how did you get to this? Like, where, where did that come from? And people love to talk about that stuff. And I do too. I mean, I, I am in no way immune to that at all. Mm. We have another question coming in from Cosmos. He asks, how do you prep for a show? And how do you come up with your questions? Your questions are really good. Do you have a minor in journalism or some interest in that, prior, in that area prior to manufacturing? What made you get into podcasting? Uh, I have no minor in journalism i've always been interested in media like i watch a lot of interviewer in interviews with uh big youtubers or people on social media there's some great people out there that do that colin and samir i think i've sent you a couple of their interviews Mm. they do a fantastic job of interviewing people and i've always really been interested in that back and forth and great interviewers. Like I love hot ones. I think Sean Evans is one of the best interviewers out there. So I I watch a lot of interviews because I love stealing questions. Like Mm -hmm. I love learning how to ask questions that are interesting to people and aren't just like, well, what's your favorite color? Like, you know, yeah, that kind of stuff. So uh, I think that that's kind of helped. I got into podcasting because Peyton reached out and wanted to start a podcast. And at the time I was listening to the bomb all the time. There wasn't really anything else out there and it sounded like fun. And, and we mm. would, you know, when he decided to leave the show, it was, I was still having too much fun. I still am yeah. too having too much fun to stop. So it was kind of a no brainer. It was, I was going to figure out a way to keep it going. Yeah. I, I, I see these legendary internet sort of question askers, these these interview interviewers that manage amazing interviews from in their like classic shows, but also spot interviews and Sean Evans hundred percent comes into mind. And then there's like people like Nadwa, who who interview musicians. He interviews like the the most disparate people, but is able to connect and create incredible content. And um, within machining. You're, you're my Nadwa and, <laughs> and, and Sean Evans. Like it's, it's really, it shows that you're interested and having fun. And um, yeah, it's, it's very, very easy to listen to. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah. As far as how do I come up with my questions? A lot of the questions, I just piggyback on the audience's excellent questions. Somebody will ask something and it'll just trigger a thought in my head of like, oh, that's adjacent to this. I'm curious about this, or I've seen this on your Instagram. So I wouldn't say that a lot of it is out of thin air. I I come Mm. up with a great question, but someone might, you know, chime in on Instagram or in the Patreon and jog something in my head that's Mm. like, oh, this is something else we need to talk about. This is, is adjacent to this. And as far as prep, I mean, Josh and I are both looking at the show outline that I make every week. It, you know, has just a really, really rough outline. It's like, you know, big titles in color that are like intro questions for guests, shop news and new things. And it's just to remind me the general flow of the show. I try to tell everyone that comes on. It's just a casual conversation. There is no script. 
at some point, somebody had asked me why I don't do pre-interviews. And I think a lot of it is that I much rather have the joy of discovery live on the show than just be rehashing stories we've already told each other. Mm. Yeah, it comes out the first time usually a lot more natural. And um, yeah, the, the, the idea of getting interv- the audience to interview or to help jog interview questions, did that come from the start of the podcast or was that something that slowly crept in? Was that gradual? I think that was from the first guest interview we did. And really it was just people want to hear their name in a podcast and like they want, like it creates instant buy-in. Like I know I've done it on podcasts, you know, you submit a question or something and you hope or you're on a live stream and you type in a you know comment really quickly and somebody's like, oh, Dylan from Tucson said this. And you're like, <laughs> oh man, that's super cool. Like, you know, I never thought that they'd say my name. So yeah. uh, I think immediately I knew that that would just be a fun thing for my audience and me to have that back and forth of, and I start knowing people through their names. You know, I see your name mm. pop up over and over. And I'm like, oh, man, they ask really good questions. Like, they're paying attention, and they, they know these people, too, and they want to know these things. And so it's, it's great, and I think it really helps build the community around the podcast. Absolutely, yeah. And if you're not on the Patreon, jump on because you get priority. All these questions are coming from the Patreon. So another question <laughs> from the Patreon is from Ethan. And uh, he asks, whose backstory has inspired you the most? If you could go back to episode one or at any point in the podcast history, would you do anything differently? Why or why not? So two-part question, the inspiration and then possible change. The backstory one, I might have to circle back to because much like favorite episodes or things like that, at 200 now, I mean, that's got to be probably 120 guests, 110 Mm -hmm. guests. I, there are so many things from everybody's story that I really appreciate, and it's hard to really nail down one that is, you know, the most inspiring or anything like that. Like even Ethan, I mean, he he's been on the show, and like hearing someone his age that's mm. just like absolutely killing it. I mean, that definitely lights a fire under my ass. It's like, I mean, he's ten years younger than me, and he's absolutely killing it on five axis Akumas. And I'm sitting here hoping for my first five axis. And so it definitely lights a fire under my ass. But as far as the most inspiring, I'll I'll circle back to that one for sure. But if I could go back, I I don't think that anything I would do differently would be big for the audience. It's like little things that I've done. Like I used to send out USB headsets that people wouldn't return to anybody Mm -hmm. in the States that was on the show. Once I got the Patreon going. And those created a bunch of feedback or like slight delay echoes. And, you know, I I ended up having to buy nicer software to get rid of them. And even then, I noticed them in some episodes where it was just obvious to me. And the second I went to nicer USB mics and a return label, problem went away. I think it has something to do with the audio going both ways on one USB cable somehow freaks it out or something. But again, it's a little thing that probably a large majority of people never noticed or noticed and didn't care enough about to stop listening. And in terms of Patreon support, what do you find uh, most supportive? Is it the money or is it the interaction, the community from the Patreon? Probably a little bit of both. Like the money is super nice because I know that if I ever need to like pick up another piece of software or a mic or something, 
it's probably covered. Like I just had to get another, well, I didn't have to get, I got another soft software recently that does automatic AI based EQ and transcription and all of that, because I saw it on MKBHD, their studio channel and their sound guy was using it. I was struggling with a little bit of EQ stuff and one of the softwares I was using and it worked great. And it was one of those subscription things. It was, you know, a couple hundred bucks for the year. I was like, Patreon pays so that the show gets better. Mm. And I use that money almost entirely. Better gear. You know, I'm going to upgrade my uh, microphone interface soon because I think it's not as good as it could be. I think that could be better. I'm always trying to experiment with new stuff so that the quality is as good as it can get, at least without having a real podcast editor doing Mm. this. I love to hear that. And I think everyone on the Patreon loves to hear that as well, that it's actually all the money that's getting funneled into this is improving the quality of the podcast and allowing you to make quality-based decisions for the podcast. Yeah, amazing. So good. We've got another question that comes from Contrast4D, Con. He says, what is the end goal? Is there an end goal? So I'm not sure what he's talking about if it's podcast or business. Podcast end goal, just keep doing this as long as I can. Like I I would love to add more to this. I said on the podcast maybe a handful episodes ago that I bought a camera. I'd love to start doing some more digital media. Uh, I have some scripts written just have to find the time to shoot them at this point. Uh, and yet yeah, just keep adding value as much as I can. Uh, you know, I've, I've experimented, like I did a few live streams for the Patreon. I did a few Patreon exclusive podcasts that were like 15 minutes. Mm. I haven't found anything that stuck. And I think that like, I'm just going to keep experimenting with things until the audience says like, Hey, yeah, we like that. Let's, let's do more of that. And I'll keep doing that. But, uh, I don't know. End goal for that, yeah, is just let's keep this show rolling as long as I can. <laughs> and then as far as business, I mean, I think I've said it on the podcast before. Brad and I, the business is a means to an end. Like if we want mm. to grow this to the point that we can sell it while it's still big and we're not old. It's not going to be my last business. I will always have, you know, quote unquote, the entrepreneur entrepreneurial spirit. But you know, I, I think that business is a means to have money, which is freedom, like to do whatever. Like I would love to have a Speedio or a Kern in my garage mm. and come up with a, an idea of something to make at 12 o'clock and go and make it and not have anything mm. in between me and making cool stuff. So, yeah, it, it's just a means to an end. On that business note, Jeff Machines asks, what made you decide to start your own shop? I'm sure it's somewhere in the past episodes, but can't recall you saying it. Give us a refresher. Okay. So this, yeah, this harkens back to when Brad and I met in school and we both were working at shops that we didn't feel like we're serving their customers well. He worked in a production shop that had a lot of issues as far as management of the shop and management of resources. I worked in a prototype shop that didn't, invest a lot in tooling and and we had a lot of old machinery and we were not investing in new processes and we both just felt like this isn't that hard like talk to your customers Mm. tell them what you're doing tell them when you're going to be late buy good tools so that you don't have to fight bad tools the time and 
obviously this is a super naive 20 year old thought where that we're both just like, well, of course we can do it better than the people who have been around for 20 years into the, in this industry. Uh, but that was the start of it. You know, we, we were young and had a lot of time and figured let's buy a machine and try this out. And you know, it's, it's rolled its way eight years now till here. Yeah. Amazing. And are there any points in that journey that were inflection points, things that uh, you look back on and you say, well, if that didn't happen, I wouldn't be where I'm at today. Ooh, that's a really good question. Uh, there, there have been certain customers that we've picked up that have been inflection points, especially Brad and I talked about this recently. Like we picked up a customer early on in the shop that had a basically a blanket plus or minus two thou tolerance on everything. And up to that point, we had worked in shops that like plus or minus five was the normal and plus or minus 10 was pretty often too. And so at first we were terrified. You know, we had our old kid, Amura. We were like, can we do this? Like, are we going to screw ourselves? This is a big customer. And we worked at it and worked at it and slowly got more and more okay with it and bought nicer machinery and the brothers and stuff. And now, you know, plus or minus two is like, oh yeah, that's easy whatever that's that's normal mm. we get stuff sometimes and we're like oh plus or minus five like do i even need to check the part like this is easy now you know mm. and so i think that not only was that a big capital boost from having a big customer that was sending us a lot of work but it was a inflection point where it really pushed us as machinists and i think that we've just gotten so much better because of things like that and we've had customers since then do that where They've sent us work. It's like right on the edge of our comfort zone. And I think I've talked about it on the show. I kind of have like a three to one rule that I try to stick to. So like I'll do three jobs that are cakewalk and I know I can just get them out. And then I'll try to pick up one job that slightly pushes my boundaries somewhere, whether that's business wise, whether that's, you know, assembly wise, whether that's tolerance or learning a new tool, buying a boring head, something Mm -hmm. along those lines that, I have to learn, I have to push because otherwise I'm just going to get bored. Like even if I'm just making cakewalk prototype parts, that's eventually going to get boring to me. Yeah. And in terms of your business process, so like you talked about onboarding this customer and how that pushed you, but in terms of how your business runs, so everything basically but the machining itself, has there been an inflection point there too? Uh, I think... The most recent one was going to paperless parts, uh, having any kind of really, I think, I don't even know if the quoting software was as important as having just a running list of jobs that Mm. Brad and I can look at with all of the drawings and prints and models and everything, basically a repository that listed our priorities and something that easy was a big enough change that, you know, before I was the inner I was interacting with most of the customers. And so Brad would have to come to me and say, What is even due in the shop? Like what what are we working on? You know, I, I've heard you talk about you quoted this and this and this, but mm-hmm. like what do we have on the board? What can I work on? And then we got paperless and he's just like looks and he goes, All right, this is the next one. Cool. I'll knock it out. And that's I mean, how a business kind of needs to work. So <laughs> <laughs> yes. yeah. But besides that. I think that a lot of it was just very slow change of like learning how to manage customers, learning how to 
quote quickly because before paperless, it was really, I had this quoting spreadsheet that a coworker gave me probably right at the beginning of the company. Like he didn't even know he was giving Mm. it to me for the company. He just was talking about it one day and I said, Oh, can I have a copy of that? I'm just interested to see what it is. And we used that for six years, six and a half years. Wow. And there, I mean, there's still a lot of black magic involved in that, that spreadsheet because it would spit out a number and then it would be up to me to go. Yeah. But really that's two X this because Mm. of this and this, or because of the opportunity cost or because I know that this customer is going to change something at the last minute. And Mm. so, um, I mean, having that spreadsheet, I guess was another inflection point up until that point. We had no framework. We had never quoted a part ever. And it was our first customer was a friend of a friend of Brad that they did stamping and we put tight tolerance features in their stamped aluminum parts. And they would just tell us what the price was. It was wow. like, hey, we got 30 of these plates and they're 30 bucks a piece. Do you want them or not? And I was like, okay, wow. sure. Like we have nothing else to do. Sure. Like, and those, oh man, those jobs sucked. Like they, there was. <laughs> Well, because we would be putting like two features in. And so mm. there would be 30, 440 screws to hold this part down to their fixture oh. that they would loan us. And then, <laughs> so it would take longer to load it and unload it than it would to run this part. And you're running stacks of plates and it's just mind numbing. And yeah, it was a nightmare. I think that actually we learned a lot of good lessons there though, too, of, you know, kind of sticking up for yourself because we started getting fixtures from them and then started noticing, well, these fixtures are terrible. Mm. Like they, they're trying to have us hold, you know, plus or minus two thou on a depth, but the whole thing is out of parallel by five thou. Yeah. So I remember having to go there and argue with one of their machinists in front of their manager and show him that the way he was checking flatness and parallelism was wrong and, you know, clue them in. And from then on, we were just like, we're quoting fixtures now too. It, all of your, your jobs are now including in fixtures and mm-hmm. there's going to be a fixture line on it. And so it, a lot of little things like that kind of grow your confidence as a business, I think. Speaking of confidence as a business, IGS Dan asks, would you and Brad ever consider selling Proteum Machining? What does success for your business look like? Yeah. So as I said, we will totally sell it. That's the, mm. that's the goal. That's the plan. I will always be a machinist. I don't need Proteum machining to be a machinist and to have fun in machining. Uh, This is a means to an end. Businesses, I think, are made to make profit. Like that is, you know, if you've followed along the book series, that is the goal to make profit. So it seems only natural to sell the business. And success, I think, is growing it to the point where short, so short term success, I think, for us is growing it to the point where it is automated to where. Our employees and us have a good work-life balance and produce far more parts than we technically should with the low numbers of employees we have. And then long-term success is selling that business. And so, yeah, we'll see where it goes. So you talked about paperless parts and you talked about your quoting spreadsheet as things that help in this automation process. More on the machining side. Uh, so in machine selection, but also tooling and all the things that are associated with it. What do you think are the key things that help along that journey of sort of self-sufficiency and automation? Oof, that's tough. I mean, yeah, we fix have all your problems. Of, <laughs> yeah, it, it, exactly. I, I think the more people I interview who do automation, the more 
deep dark pit holes there are that you can fall into by accident and i mean even you now having a machine with integrated automation there are still issues that mm. pop up that you don't think about and so like we're i don't know i think we're just taking a gamble like we're betting that Hermless system is going to be long-term what we want, that the HS Flex is going to be long-term. What I think is going to be the easiest for us from everybody I've talked to, integrated solutions are heaps better than you know trying to tack on stuff on the outside of the machine. Uh, pallet loading, I think, is at least in the short term far superior for job shopping than part loading. And so but at the end of the day, like we haven't done it. So it's just a gamble. Like this is, you know, we're going to buy the, the Hermla first, most likely like that's, I don't know, 98% our next machine, probably mm. like that's as, as sure as I can be without having a new space to move into or, you know, place the PO. But I think that that's where we we're going to go and we're going to try to automate that. Like, so my, short-term vision for it is to buy like a four-sided tombstone and be able to automate that overnight and just like okay i've got a few stainless parts they run for 45 minutes a piece let me run four sides of a tombstone and leave for all four hours of it Hmm. and if i can make it through those four hours cool then next time i load up you know a double station vices on all four sides and then i make it through six hours or eight hours or something and so i think that if we can get a workflow as far as tool breakage and just speeds and feeds on stuff like that that will last that many parts when we do finally jump in with both feet and buy a real automation system for it and you know extra tool capacity hopefully will be a little further ahead you know because from everything i've seen if you buy that kind of money's worth of automation you have to be ready to go asap it's not something you can dilly dally around and and hope that oh, you know, in six months, maybe I'll have parts running. It's like, you should probably have parts running in a week if you can do it. So, yeah. That's, yeah. That is the most challenging thing, I think, about automation outside of, like, the technical challenges is the business case for it. They're such high-value items, those complex automation systems, that if they're not being utilized, obviously, they're not being paid off. And that's fine if your automation system is, like, low five figures but if your automation system is like mid six figures suddenly it's a lot more pressure to get things running and it it's it's like the chicken and the egg right you should have the work there the day before you install the system but sometimes you need the system to attract the work that is is going to come as well exactly Uh, yeah and yeah I mean, I, I see all these things as like large scale infrastructure projects. It's often very helpful to look at look at a, a project like that in the context of what would a Microsoft or Amazon or a very large medical company, how would they approach this problem? Well, they'd probably have multiple engineers doing procurement, then multiple engineers looking at like how they're going to plan work going in and out of the machine. And meanwhile, it's just like a small business taking on a very large project and you feel all this pressure, but it's there's almost comfort in knowing that these kinds of projects take very large companies, lots of resources, both in time and money to execute on. Um, and yeah, the other, the other thing with automation is that it's, it's 
obviously very easy to make a lot of scrap. I think that's like that one sort of thing that's hanging above everyone's head. It's like, well, yeah, I can automate automate scrap making. That's the easiest thing to automate. <laughs> but qualification of the process, I don't know how how standardized qualification because every single process, every single part has like this little weird intricacy. Like you make this part outside of stainless tool life. Yeah, okay, you understand stainless tool life. But it's got one bore that's plus or minus 10 microns. Well, suddenly your whole process has to change based around that one feature. And then that's just an example, right? There might be other features or parts that demand, um, maybe it's not even a type tolerance. Maybe it's just like chatter or surface finish or something like that. Um, but it's a, like a unique case-by-case basis. And I see small companies actually have a benefit with that because they're a little bit more agile. Like if it's you running your automation cell, you have a really, really tight feedback loop as to what's working and not working. But if you're, you know, integrated into like 20 machines and you have to keep them all running, like you might actually end up just making really bad parts before you even pick up, before QC even finds out that that 10 micron bore is actually like 50 microns oversized. Anyway, my, my two cents on that. But Well, yeah. so to, to take a little detour, I do want to get a little update on your Kern because last time <laughs> we had you were just starting to use it a little more we've talked since then you've been running like mm. main plates overnight how is I think main plates am I wrong there or some watch not faces main plates or? but yeah what watch parts yeah how's it been going oh man it's it's overall very very positive extremely positive um does feed into a little bit of what I what I just mentioned and it's like every part is different and how do you qualify some parts? How do, we, how do you qualify the process? Like it's very easy or tempting. It's very tempting to just scale a process because it worked once. You're like, oh yeah, it'll work like four or five times through the night or during the day. And that's probably where we're still at where running more and more unattended during the day Um to see how reliable our processes can be during the night and for the watch parts specifically. So we're, we're like on the watch face, there's indices and numerals that are separate to the actual base of the dial. They get put onto the, onto the dial and then sort of uh, fastened by laser welding from the backside. And there's a few like tricky things to gauge. Um, the first is, like the, the pin diameters, it's a 0.2 millimeter pin and there's probably about, well, we're trying to keep plus or minus five microns on the pin diameter. Oh, um, wow. Yeah, it's not it's not super easy. But then like burr formation actually overrides all of that. You can hit the diameter, but if you're burred up, no bueno. Um, and then you sort of think, okay, I'll just chamfer everything. But if your chamfer is off by about 10 microns in Z, it suddenly produces a a shape that's too big and too like aesthetically wrong, which which is crazy to think oh, about. Geez. So qualification for that is is really human based. And so if we can start something sort of at the start of the day and by the end it's finished machining and you have a final QC check, both on your dimensions but also on your sort of aesthetic properties, then we have this sort of feedback loop. But it takes a whole day sometimes to machine a pallet of these parts. Um there's that and there's like tool life, which is another sort of funky little thing. In, in the micro world, tools can still cut, but the cutting force can be really, really high 
relative to the size of the tool. So you get more deflection and then you get sort of smearing and weird feature generation and all those things you can't qualify in a single run. Might only pick up on the fourth or fifth palette that one tool is dull and it can be inversely affect or sorry, adversely affecting so many other parts of that same process. So we don't run anything overnight just yet. And it might might be a, f- a little while before that gets it gets to that stage, but unattended during the day is still a huge win. Um, totally, yeah, yeah. I mean, especially you know, for anybody listening, if you're in Australia, they are hiring. <laughs> Go get the coolest job ever. But I'm sure that that helps. You know, having that machine run all day without intervention for the most part at least takes the sting out of not having enough people a little bit. Yeah, it definitely helps with that and frees up the human resource to be able to start planning the next thing or work on another project. And yeah, it's, um, I think automation is actually an incredibly difficult challenge. People say that it's challenging, but how many people talk about why and, and the more, like basically you have to find out why yourself a lot of the time and it's no amount of people telling you oh it's hard it's hard ever like clicks in until you you start trying to get reliability and you could you could talk about automating you know a really complex part and it's obviously hard or you could talk about automating a relatively simple part but in high volumes or in high throughput or in low cycle times and that's hard too so there's different facets of hard um so, yeah, I mean, yeah, obviously, if you're in Australia, hit me up. We're, we're looking for more people and growing the team. Thank you, Dylan, for saying that. Of course. Um, Man, if I was living yeah. there, I would be knocking on your door immediately. I mean, I think it's just <laughs> such a killer opportunity that I can't believe you don't have more people applying. You know, it seems insane. Well, yeah, thank you for the kind words. That's very nice. We've got more questions, though. Yes. Let's, let's power through. I've got a question that I wrote down. I said, peek behind the curtain. Has the podcast opened doors for you, quantifiable or non-tangible? Yes, to both. We have gotten work from it only in very, very recent years. Have we gotten work from it? Like it, someone asked me, you know, should I start a podcast to get business for, to get work for my business? And I was like, definitely not unless you're in it for the long haul. Like, yeah, it took three years for me to see gross benefits from it Mm. and i think you really have to be doing it too from a place of not wanting those things Mm -hmm. like i think if if from day one i had been really hard selling proteum like every episode having a you know a sponsored by proteum segment i don't think any of you would be listening or very few of you would still be listening um i I don't think that that is honest and i don't think that that is what has actually given me business you know people who have reached out because of the podcast do because they listen because they enjoy it. Not because, oh man, well you sold Proteum so hard that you must be that good. You know, it was never about that. And I think as non-tangible benefits, I've talked a lot on the show about you have to reach out to other machinists. Like this trade is so isolating and it's so niche that you have to find friends. If they're not in your local community, you have to find them out and about. And I have this Rolodex now of friends and acquaintances and people I can turn to, you know, like if I run across a, a, you know, 
reel of some cool watch or something, who do you think I send it to? You think I send it to my you know friends locally? No, I send it to Josh. Like I'm like, dude, is this cool or not? Like, have you looked at this before? So I've just met so many people. It's fantastic. There's so many people I can reach out to and just ping ideas off of, or you know, like if I had had skyhook questions, it's like mm. Amish would be the one I'd talk to because he's he's talked about it so much or shown it so much with his DMG, and it's like. I have so many people to turn to now for questions and I can just build this network of people that can ask me questions and vice versa. And I absolutely love it. Yeah, that's brilliant. And, and the, the massive unexpected benefit of this, of getting into this trade. When, when I started doing this, I never thought that I'd have mates across the world who I could talk to at any hour, literally any hour. There's guys in Europe that, like, you know, wake up at some time and, you know, now I know Marvin's schedule and when he wakes up and goes to sleep, I know Adam gets up super early so that there's like an overlap. So there's not a moment in the day where you can't just flick a message to someone. And who would have thought like machining is, you know, that dirty, oily thing, right? <laughs> that like gets, gets looked over in trade schools and yeah, but it's actually not, not quite true. Um, no, not at all. Uh, yeah. It's, it's actually funny you say that because I have two world clocks on my phone on my second <laughs> screen and one is sydney time because no we talk enough that i'm like oh well i don't want to bug him like 2 a.m and then one is <laughs> berlin so that travis and uh-huh. i can talk but it's always like you know i'll scroll over one i'll be like oh yeah it's like 6 a.m josh is probably up i can shoot him a message <laughs> so yeah it's yeah. fantastic having really worldwide friends and reach mm. because of this it does does speak to how isolating the trade could be as well i think that's something that like the discord helps with obviously what we've just been talking about in terms of like um podcasting and and insta machinists but and then like linkedin as well all these social media platforms they they definitely help in reducing the the real isolation of of being in a shop by yourself all day or seeing one person or two people or being a in a team that's just pretty static um, I, I know like from a mental health standpoint, hundred percent being able to just vent, like my wife is lovely, fantastic, beautiful, but she doesn't know what a breaking a $200 <laughs> tool feels like or even worse, $1 million tool. She doesn't know what that feels like. And it's, right. it's, um, like no therapist would either. And only people within your industry and sometimes people close to your age, Mm-hmm. Only they truly know what it feels like. And and having that support network, I think, is just so, so valuable. And So you're, if you're listening and you don't have that, please go find it. Whether yeah, it's yeah. reaching out to me or reaching out to you know anybody online, find a network of people you can chat Absolutely. with or something. Like I just reconnected with a... So this guy, Scott in town, he owns a great machine shop. He worked at my last job just just before I arrived there. Like we've just missed each other throughout the years. And he runs a shop with his business partner and we're very close in age. And like we just went out and had a couple of beers last mm-hmm. night. And just having someone local that I can sit down and have a couple of beers with and we can lament about, you know, engineers sending yeah. us impossible <laughs> to machine models or, you know, customers not paying on time. You know, little things that you just want to bitch about sometimes. Mm-hmm is so helpful. It's just so much fun. You know, at the end of the night, I was like super jazzed up to go back to the shop the next day. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. incredibly helpful. 
Yeah, it's so funny. After I think the last time I was on, I mentioned croissants. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's my my latest sort of binge. I love, love finding a good croissant. And then a friend who was who I'd known, I'd known this guy, James, for a little while. He reaches out and he's like, oh, you know what? You want to grab a croissant together and just chat. And that's been like a regular thing, monthly thing since that episode. And we've, you know, bonded and he owns a machine shop down the road and and literally down the road. And we we formed something because of this podcast. That's amazing. Nuts. nuts. That see, those are the stories that make this like so gratifying. Like I love the work that I've gotten from it. Sure, great. But like that's the stuff that like I can't wait to keep the show going because yeah. of that. Like people reach out all the time. They're like, Oh, I found a job because you had so and so on the show, or like I found this tool that like saved this job for me because of something you you said on the show. And like, that's the stuff that like, Mm. oh man, that that hits me close to home, you know? (laughs) Brilliant. Semi-related. I've got another question written down here. How do you find your next guest? Honestly, most of it's through Instagram. Like I just, and it's usually people I've followed for a while that I'll ask on Sometimes somebody will recommend someone and say, hey, go check out his page. He does cool stuff. I'm not really against a lot of stuff. We were talking beforehand. The only thing that I want to steer away from is like advertisement stuff. Mm -hmm. Like I I think I really value the trust my audience has given me. And the last thing I want to do is put products on the show that I, I don't like the person behind them or I don't trust them or they have not been around enough. Um, like if I do bring on a new company, it's because I want to hear the story of a early company, not mm. because I'm trying to tell you as an audience, go buy his stuff. And I really take that seriously because I, I think there's far too much advertising a machinist mm. and, and machining that is disingenuous and, you know, it was funny. Easton and I were talking this week about how owning a business and being a, a machine shop owner kind of makes you an asshole sometimes. <laughs> like you, you get to the point where there's so many distributors, you know, knocking on your door yeah. and trying to sell you yeah. the next best thing. And you, you like, I went from this person who wanted to give everyone a slice of my time to, don't mm. talk to me ever again and don't ever come <laughs> back here because I don't like you. You know, like I hate doing that. Uh, and so the last thing I want to do is make my show anything like that. Yeah. Yeah, that's so true. I mean, if I heard on any podcast, but like on something that I trust, like like this podcast, if I heard sponsored by machining tool manufacturer A at the start, it'd just be an instant turnoff. And uh, there is there is like... um a lot of vera- like a uh, yeah veracity i guess no it's not the right word but like a lot of truth in in you sticking to your guns and and doing stuff that you actually like a because it's obvious that you like it and it's easy to listen to but b because machine tool companies or cutting tool manufacturers they actually pay money for this stuff they they do want advertisement in the 21st century and they do want new forms of influencing marketing and and purchasing decisions and saying no to that and sort of standing your ground and making a making a media format that you enjoy yourself is yeah there's there's honor in that i appreciate that yeah and again not to plug the patreon but 
the Patreon is the reason I can do that too. Like not the reason I can do that, but it helps me say no. You know, it's like, no, I've already got a few hundred people sponsoring me every month. And I am much more grateful to that than I am to like, you know, XYZ tooling company, like, oh, we'll give you a hundred dollars an episode to say that you use our end mills kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, I've got one more question here. Um, it's you said that you'd loop back to it, and it's fine. It's fine that you won't say that the Josh Hacko episodes weren't the best episodes. It's fine. I'll I'll, I'll concede. <laughs> but you just can't say that the Adam Demuth episodes were the best ones either. Otherwise, I, I will be very upset. But is there something that stood out in the last you know two hundred episodes that really struck a chord? So something I ran a what was it five thousand follower giveaway something like that on LinkedIn to grow our LinkedIn and also to, you know, just kind of give it back. And I was asking for favorite quotes and actually John Rabinowitz, who runs the shop, he reminded me of one story that I really loved and it was Josh Ogle. And the quote that he posted was the worst thing you can do is get everything you've dreamed of everything I wanted. I had, and I didn't know what the hell to do with it. I didn't know that I could just be happy with that and just keep going. Wow. And that reminded me like what a excellent, I guess, comeback story his story is and just mm-hmm. like how inspiring it is to just, you can just be happy. Like sometimes it's okay to just enjoy what you're doing and, and, you know, say like, okay, today's just a good day. There's nothing that I need to do besides just enjoy it. And so I went back through that list because I remembered seeing that quote and really liking it. And actually, he, he was the one who won because of that quote. I, I saw it and I was like, yeah, that's that's got to win because I really love the sentiment there. Amazing. And of course, all the Josh Hacko episodes. Boom, 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 boom. Cut it out. Cut it out. <laughs> no, I, like I told you before we started, it's really hard to nail down any one episode. There, there are little bits that are so fantastic from so many of them. You know, like... Anytime I talk to Jeff Tiedekin, it's like, mm-hmm. you want to learn how to run a shop on a shoestring budget out of your garage and still end up with Matsuras and stuff. Like, listen to his episodes because they're always so fun. And he just, he has a way of just like, I will make it work. Like, things will yeah. things will work out in my favor if I work hard and just keep my nose down. And and it does, clearly. But he's he's all talk when it comes to getting on the podcast, he always hypes himself up that he's going to be a six-hour episode. And I'm sitting there. I'm waiting. Come on, Jeff. Bring it on. But never, never once has he passed the threshold. And We'll uh, get there one day. I promise. <laughs> one day we will get there. I'm trying to think of other episodes. Like, oh, Jeff Hooper from Chip Monkeys. Another, another oh, yeah. great lesson of like, I don't need big machines. I don't need to make a million dollars. I just want to make cool parts in my garage and be able to ride my motorcycle Mm. while the machine runs. And it's like, yeah, that's awesome. Like right on, you know, that's not the right thing for everyone. And that's not everyone's goals. But like, I think it's a good aspiration to have of like, you know what, you can just be happy and like, just make parts if you want to with a couple of machines. Like that's totally fine. Mm. Great answers. And you can see how, humble you are and in taking that advice that's really yeah it's it's deep it's super super deep i've always been someone who maybe has been criticized as not being happy in the present situation like not mm. stopping to smell the roses just you know use a terrible cliche but like i'm i'm always like okay great that that's wonderful i'm glad we accomplished that 
on to the next goal. And, and I think that that's kind of necessary to grow a business. But having people on the show that do remind me of like, dude, you got it good. Like look back mm-hmm. five years ago. And I, Brad and I try to have that kind of retrospection of like, man, eight years ago, we were working in shops we didn't want to be working in. We had an old Kitamura that was breaking down occasionally. We had just enough work to literally keep the lights on and pay our rent. And look where we are now. And look at all the tools we have and like how much easier our workflow is because we have invested in all this stuff. And so I, I do have to forcefully remind myself, you got it good, dude. Like, let's let let's take a beat. You know, even on a terrible day, yeah, you scrap that part. But like globally, we're doing well. This is a good yeah. day. Yeah, that's that's been a recurring theme. I think how how do you how do you remain in the present? How do you actually disassociate from all the worries and stuff that's happening in your head? And like, oh, I forgot to order that tool, and a customer is going to be upset because it's late or. I don't have enough work. All these thoughts prevent you from, as a business owner, as a machinist, as someone in like a a relatively high stress trade, they prevent you from being in that moment. And tips and ideas and methods of how to get into the moment and stay in the moment are always so welcome. I was talking with, with Phil, Steel Phil on Instagram. And yeah, like it, it seems it's a recurring narrative. Uh, amongst sort of machinists in general how do you sometimes it's existential as well like you're you're wondering like what are the parts that i'm making i'm just pressing a green button all day or like these things that are just going to go in like it's cool that they're going to space but they just turn into space junk after a year like every (laughs) yeah yeah. that's a deep (laughs) rabbit hole right there like am i contributing to the future doom of the human race as we know it Maybe. We'll see. Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see. Yeah. But I I guess everything, every single thing you do in life can be approached from that pessimistic attitude. And yeah, it's very refreshing to hear someone say, well, actually, let's, let's, let's try to stop. Let's try to think and let's try to capture the good things and, and celebrate them. Yeah. I think it's really important and I'm trying to find it. I don't know if you've ever read Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Mate. Oh, I've heard of the book. Yeah, I've never read it. It took me uh, three or four times to get through the book. Okay. It is it is a, a little weird, for sure. <laughs> but I think that, like, especially as a machinist, if you can get in that flow state most often, that's where I find happiness the most. Is like right. whether that's I turn on some awesome song or something and i'm running three machines and i'm programming something and things are just going my way uh but the quote and i have it written down on my phone because i loved it so much um hold on one second okay the way to see what looks good and to be at one with this goodness as the work proceeds is to cultivate an inner quietness a peace of Mm -hmm. mind so that goodness can shine through I say inner peace of mind. It has no direct relationship to the external circumstances. It can occur to a monk in meditation, to a soldier in heavy combat, or to a machinist taking off that last ten thousandths of an inch. Hmm. And I've always loved that. I, I, you know, that's. I do think that you get that flow state where time just disappears, and you are just making parts and having fun. And the, the more time I can spend there, the happier I am overall.
You're listening to Within Tolerance, a podcast for machinists by machinists. I'm your host, Chris Zappatini of Zappatini Consulting. And this week we have Dylan on the show. Welcome, Dylan. Hey, Chris. How's Dude. it going? You know, living the dream. <laughs> <laughs> You're privy to, to my financial issues. And I guess actually everybody is. So <laughs> just the woes continue, but it'll be fine. You know? Yeah. Well, I mean, like we we were talking earlier today, I think you've cut a lot of dead weight out of the company, and you just uh, haven't seen ballast has not you know yeah. come it come due yet. You have not re been buoyant again. Uh, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, I mean, if if it ends up being that I finish this project sleeping in my car, then that's that's what it takes, you know. Right. But hey. We'll be fine. It'll be then fine. it'll be an even better comeback story. Yeah, That's all I'll be like, be like, hey, I was just like in the Walmart parking lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's hope it doesn't make it to that. Yeah. But yes, anyway, it would still be a good story. Anyway, two hundredth episode, baby. Two hundred. I know. Yeah, I, I spoke with Josh last night. It was. It, it's very surreal to think. For some reason, I had it in my head that two hundred episodes was not four years and yeah. I was like, oh yeah it has been four years of this this is pretty cool yeah four four beautiful years yeah did sure. you i don't know if this is i don't think this is a question that anybody asked but like i'm gonna jump right into it mm-hmm. and and ask like when you started doing this did you think you would have like the best machining podcast <laughs> that they're oh ma- a manufacturing <laughs> podcast that that is kind of readily available First of all, very kind. I I would never use that phrase to describe my podcast. Well, that's because you're because you're a humble guy. But I mean, <laughs> I think I think I think anybody, pretty much anybody listening to this, would probably agree that like that for, for not being like super niche, you know, like obviously precision microcast is like something that people consider very like they're they tout very highly because it's so awesome and it's it's also very elusive (laughs) oh yeah but but like in terms of in terms of this show it's just so eclectic you know and it brings in a lot of different perspectives so in terms of like a amalgamation of cnc machining and just general manufacturing i think it i think that's what makes this one like, I mean, obviously it's my favorite. To be honest, it's the like only one that I listen to for the most part, other than like incremental. Right. Um <clears throat> well, very much appreciate that. I never definitely never thought it would be where it is now. I always had wanted from day one, I was pushing guests from day one. Like even when it was Peyton and I, I wanted yeah. to have people on because I thought it was so valuable to have a platform where I could bring on subject matter experts the beginning i had kind of envisioned it more of like oh i'll bring on someone from qualicam and we'll talk about coolant and you know someone from osg and we can talk about taps and eh, boring <laughs> well, and it's happened here and there you know like yeah. i've had doug from fraser or you know dave from carbide cutting tools and stuff like mm-hmm. that but those, yeah, those really, are really different animals though yeah cuz like cuz like <laughs> doug is um Doug is like the CTO of Frasia and they're he's like programming and cutting with his stuff. Ooh. So Dave from Carbide Cutting Tools, same thing. Like I haven't got a chance to 
use his stuff. But when I had an issue with a tool, right, and I think I said this on a previous episode, within the span of a week, he he designed two different tools, tested them both, and shipped them to me. Like, you're not getting that from OSG or Qualicam. You know what I mean? Right, yeah. No, I, I think that I along the way discovered how much I love just meeting new people through this Mm -hmm. and like hearing there's been so many guests that have come on where, you know, I ask everyone, you know, how did you get into this? And you think, you know, a lot of the stories are the same. Like I loved Legos. I loved cars. I love BMX bikes. Mm -hmm. And then there's the people who are like, Oh yeah, I was in school for like music or something somehow made my way into manufacturing. And that's the stuff where you're like, man, this really does like, cross so many barriers at its core or can i guess cross all these barriers at its core which is just super cool to see yeah yeah i think it fundamentally comes down to like most of the people in this trade like to solve problems um and we just find like a the most stressful way to solve a problem really is cutting (laughs) metal yeah yeah it's it's definitely not for the the faint-hearted people at Mm -hmm. all Well, yeah. Do you want to, we can jump into some of the questions. I think we had some great ones. I mean, and I think that was a great one too. I appreciate it. Yeah. So I'm going to ask one more question, one more personal question before we jump into some of these other ones. And I kind of alluded to it before we started recording, but like if you, and there's kind of a, a user question like this, but it's, if you were to go back and do it again, because you have talked about wanting to get into product development on here before, do you think that you would place more of an emphasis on product development when you were part-time versus starting a prototype shop when you were part-time? I mean, similar to how, (laughs) yeah, similar to how we were talking earlier, I do agree with you. It is probably easier to do that Mm part-time because there's not external due dates and I think if had you asked me maybe even six or eight months ago, I would have said, yeah, I should have started with products. Mm-hmm. But now, especially after like our focus in like the pumpkin plan and stuff. Yeah. I kind of let go of that whole, like, I want to make my own product stuff. Oh. Like that was a, that was a, a rotten pumpkin. Like I, yeah. I never got far enough down that route that I have anything that I'm really attached to. Like I have designs that, Sure, one day if I sell the company and have a, you know, a Speedio in my garage or something and I'm just, mm-hmm. you know, farting around and making stuff, I'll go back and revisit all these projects and make all the fun stuff. But I got to be like laser focused on what we're doing well. And that's prototyping at a high level, I think. Nice. That's a beautiful answer. Makes me cry over here. Because I, <laughs> that's, that's not, that's not necessarily, because I, that's not what I thought you were going to say. So that was cool. Um, <clears throat> tight. Oh, this is this is one that I like. Why are you so handsome? And who has the <laughs> coolest R- RX-7 you've ever ridden in? Thank then, you, Ryan. Yeah. And then, hey, you didn't answer the question. <laughs> I have no idea. Yeah, I guess just, I'm, I was just born this way. Born with, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then, Ryan definitely had the coolest <laughs> RX-7s. A little story about that. Yeah. Ryan had a V8 swapped. Oh man, he's going to kill me if I mess this up. I think it was an FC RX-7 that he V8 swapped and turboed. And that thing was <laughs> truly terrifying. Um, yeah. Like it can't remember what he dynoed it at. I want to say it was close to 500 wheel horsepower. And it was just, 
those things like, weigh like nothing, right? Yeah, it felt like a, like a freight train just pulling. Like there was yeah. no lag in power and just going through the gears. It was just nothing but push you back in your seat the entire time and truly was a frightening machine. And, you know, he drove it all the time and somehow didn't kill himself. It was awesome. Where is it now? Did he get rid of it? It met its end to, unfortunately, to a, I want to say it was like a drunk driver or something that hit it Uh, while it was parked. It was, yeah, just absolutely heartbreaking. Yeah. At least he wasn't in it and didn't get like, because in Arizona, it's very common for people to get on the freeway going the wrong way and murder somebody. Um, Yeah. Yeah. As as bad as it was to the car, I guess overall, like you said, you know, nobody was hurt besides, you know. Probably the drunk driver. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Actually, so, probably not the drunk driver. Those guys never get hurt. They're always fine because they're fucking like noodles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, unfortunately true. But um, yeah, so yeah, it was by far his has been the coolest RX-7 I've ever ridden in or been around. It was it was badass. It was really cool. Nice. And then so I guess like the real question, quote unquote, is what are the, the top three pieces of advice for somebody who wants to start with their own CNC machine? or CNC shop. It's a big, also a massive question. (laughs) Yeah, it is. And I think like advice I would give now is much more about the customer service and like mental well-being side of it than it would be a few years ago where it'd be like, Oh, you need this kind of tooling and you need this kind of machine. And like now it's much more focused for me on the business side of it than it is like machining. Yeah. Cause making parts is the easy thing. You know, it's just kind of like the hilarious thing to think about. But I mean, if just because you can make a part doesn't mean you can run a shop and doesn't mean you can do this and doesn't mean you can do that. But like it is so much less about being able to make parts and just being able to like, you know, the the evergreen tenant of just being able to communicate (laughs) with people. Yeah. Um, So I guess my top theory, I told you one the other day over text. The first one would be, Never argue something that can be fixed with an apology. I really like that one. Yeah. What I mean by that is that if your customer comes to you mad about something and all it takes for them to be happy is to say you're sorry, even if it's not your fault, just apologize. Yeah. Get your ego out of it. Make your customer happy. It's fine. Yeah. Uh, I'm not saying like you have to, you know, fall on your sword and remake a bunch of parts if they screwed something up. But I'm saying that if they come to you and say, Hey, I wish that this surface finish hadn't been better. Or, hey, I wish that you had like deburred this. And you know, in their print that it had said something like, leave sharp. Don't argue it. Just say, next time we'll make sure that that's better. Yeah. And then you turn to your buddy next to you and then you start bitching. But you don't bitch. That's when I call Chris and go, (laughs) man, you got to hear this story. Yeah. And I'm like, (laughs) yeah. Oh, dude. Like, we had a, we, not to derail you, but like, we had the project that we're working on in Massachusetts, like, they want us to finish and we're getting close to actually finishing it, even though it's about to have a fucking birthday. Oh. And all of a sudden they're like, I think we need to want to add another robot to this system to do like, to like blow off the parts or whatever. And it's like, the fuck are you guys talking about? Like, this doesn't <laughs> even make sense. And they're like, Oh, we can, we can probably do it ourselves. And it's like, you say that, but then you asked us what it would take to do it. So I don't believe that you can do this yourself. Um, oh no. But we we got them off of that for the most part but it was just like such a weird thing because i'm like 
I mean, obviously that was I'm like, dude, this is a crazy customer story right now. Just out of nowhere. Like, yeah, we just want to add a robot. Yeah, no big, but we'll do Easy. it ourselves. Then we Easy. won't screw up your stuff. Don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be Ooh. fine. It's going to be fine. Anyway. All right. Second tip. Your parts are most likely not the only parts your buyer or customer is dealing with. Yep. What seems like the end of the world to you is just a small roadblock in their project. And you need to learn that and act as such. So like rather than literally staying up all night to run apart because you're so worried about it and then you end up being late anyway and you tell your customer and they go, oh yeah, that's no biggie. Thanks for letting Mm -hmm. me know. Like that happens far, that, that happens so much more than your customer freaking out because you're a day or two late. Yeah, so... So number one, underlying message, communicate. Number two, underlying message, communicate. So it is, most of this is going to be business it, stuff. It like. is so business stuff. Cause it, but it is like the amount of times where people, like there's a question, like this feature doesn't seem like they, like do they need this to be this way? Like it doesn't seem like it would instead of trying to beat your head against the wall to like try and make it happen in like spending all night trying to do this thing where it's like, Oh, I can't get, I can't get this. I like a good example I can think of is, um, trying to hold like an eight thou true position to cast datums or something. And we were like beating our head against the wall, whatever, whatever. Didn't want to talk to, um, the customer and then they, we eventually got the engineer in and they were like, oh, that? We just want it to be concentric to the casting. That's why it's so tight. And it's like, uh, that's easy. Like, why did you dimension it this way? And he's like, uh, a junior engineer, you know? Like, just over GD&T'd, which, I mean, that's a, that's a thing we see more and more from, like, kids out of school, pretty much, is it's like, well, this has to be a 2,000 true position over, like, a meter, it's like, why? Yeah. Because it has to be. Like, yeah, because oh, okay. I, I want it to be. It's like, <laughs> yeah. well, have you done any analysis? No, it, that just feels right. Yeah. If you do it like this, then I don't have to worry about it later. If all my parts are perfect, then they just go together really well. Like, oh, yeah, interesting. <laughs> yeah. Crazy how that works. Okay. Yeah. Uh, number, number three. Number three. And this is really more of a personal philosophy, but I think that it's something that you should at least consider if you're starting a shop or running a shop. And that is prioritize quality over due date every time. If you have to make a choice, people will forgive you being late 90% of the time. They will remember that you screwed up parts and you shipped subpar parts. Yeah. Yep. hundred percent. Don't deliver garbage. Never deliver garbage. Like it's, People will be upset that you're right. Like people will kind of be upset when you're late, but they'll be more upset if you're on time with bad, (laughs) with garbage. Yeah. That's crazy. Or even shipping like stuff that's right on the edge. Like if you're like, oh, Mm -hmm. they gave me all this tolerance, but I'm like right on the outside, you know, just passed in like, oh, it's only a thou. It's only two tenths. It's only whatever. (laughs) If they catch that, they won't trust you. And like, that's what you have with your customers. And like, it's so hard to rebuild trust with customers where, and and yes, fully admit due due dates and deadlines fall in there too. Like if you say you're going to be done, 
definitely try your hardest to be done. But I'm saying that if you have to make the choice, like if you, it, it's four o'clock, you have to ship by five and you find one of your parts has a nick in it or has a bore that's undersized or oversized. And it's the difference between shipping that day or redoing it tomorrow and then shipping that tomorrow mm-hmm. and letting them know that the email that says, Hey, we found an escape in our final inspection. We will send this tomorrow because yeah. we're going to remake it. Sounds a hell of a lot better than their email back to you of, Hey, one of the five parts you sent us has out of tolerance feature. Yeah. And is unusable. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So I think those are the three biggest pieces of advice. Uh, and again, I, I, I'm sorry, Ryan, I'm sure you're probably looking more for, you know, mills and stuff like that. But I, I think the business part of it is really the hardest part of it for me and, and the most learning I have to do consistently. I think it's, I think a lot of people would, would agree with that really. Cause truthfully, like if that's not where you are, like you probably should be there that like thinking about the business. Cause that was my, that was my experience when I first, when I started a shop when I was like 20, you know, was, Oh, I can make parts. I'm going to make money period. Mm-hmm. And it's like, Oh yeah, you got to be able to like get customers and make good parts. And like, that's part of it. But like, then what, like invoicing and packaging and blah, blah, blah. Like there's so much more that goes into it than just making parts. It's such a, such a weird thing to think about a machine shop, but it's like being the smallest part is machining parts, but it is kind of like the thing that you should be good at anyway. So you shouldn't really focus on that. Which right. is weird. Yeah. Because <laughs> well, it's the relationships. Like you're not yeah. zometry. So you have to my value add is my customer service. It is yeah. the fact that someone can call me and I can walk right out there and be like, Oh, here's here's where your parts are. Here's the delays, here's the successes. I'll send you pictures if you want. That's my value add over a place like Zometry or Fictive or whatever. Yeah. Hundred percent. Um, some great advice. Um Let's talk about your decision to go into business with a partner and how that has been. Um, things like your skill set, what's different, what's the same, how does the day-to-day look, which, I mean, we've talked about it on this. It's It's been an evolution for sure. Um, I mean, it's been, you guys have been in business for... Eight years this year. Eight years this year, yeah. Yeah. So I imagine this this is like, this is also, I mean, all these questions are fucking massive questions. That's (laughs) what we're here for, baby. We want to hear you talk. Yeah. Really, the decision to go into business uh, was, and I've said it numerous times, this was just Brad and I being super naive and in our early 20s and saying, we can do it better than our bosses. We should start a shop. And he had some money saved up and I didn't. He was more than happy to put put up capital to start the shop. And it just worked out like that. And really, we kind of just did it very part time for years. I mean, we <laughs> I remember initially we we had these delusions of grandeur of like, oh, well, like we'll do this for like a year and then we'll go full time and we'll be making like rolling in money. Like, you know, kind of like what you were saying of like, oh, I'm, I'm young and dumb and I think I can just start a shop and make parts. Mm-hmm. And it'll just money will rain down on me from the heavens. Yep. It doesn't work like that. <laughs> and there was a lot of back and forth. You know, Brad initially didn't have any 
he just was like happy just having a shop and like making stuff here and there and whatever. And I was the one who was pushing to be like, no, no, no. I want to make this like our jobs. Like I want to go full time here eventually. And even for me, that took years before I really felt dedicated to it. Like mm-hmm. we were kind of in this limbo state for probably three years, if, if not more. And then I really doubled down on it when I got my last job and it just kind of exploded from there. Um, really, you know, putting in a concerted effort and deciding, okay, I need to leave my job. I need to make a place that I can leave to. So as far as different skill sets, for sure, especially in the beginning, I had done very, very little stainless and anything like that. And Brad's job was all stainless. And mm-hmm. I had done very little production and Brad's job was all production. It, it's production stainless steel pretty much. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, he was the one who just knew how to shut up and run a machine. And like we were, I said it on the the earlier part with Josh that like our first customer, we just did a bunch of stamped plates that then we put tight tolerance features into. Oh, interesting. And he was the one who could just stand, standing there and bolting and unbolting these plates and running them for hours and hours and hours. And that was a, a skill I had to learn. Like he was totally comfortable in it and I was definitely not comfortable in it. Yeah. You're like, can I do anything else? Please. (laughs) Oh yeah. Yeah. It was really tough for me to be motivated at all for that kind of stuff. Uh, And then day to day work, we kind of just right now I do still a large majority of the quoting. And so I will just let him know like, Hey, I quoted this job. It's going to go on this machine. You're most likely going to do it you know, Mm -hmm. unless the schedule changes and decision-making is more or less just looking over at each other at a desk and say, Hey, I want to do this. What do you think? Hey, I want to do this. Okay. Yeah, let's do that. Um, If it's like a bigger decision, I mean, we've joked and it's still technically a real thing. Like if we're buying a machine, we typically go to top golf to talk about it in air quotes. (laughs) I mean, we've already very much made the decision at that point, but we go and hit some balls and, and chat a little bit more about it and really make the final decision there. Um, and again, we've done that for every machine, I think. Nice. So there was something that you said there kind of early in your, in your answer was about the three year limbo state. So what exactly did that look like um, for both of you guys? Really? So when both of us had, uh, day jobs brad was night shift and i was day shift and so he worked like two to midnight four days a week and i worked i mean i went through a few jobs in that time period but you know seven or eight to four or five or something like that and so i would go in after work if we had orders which sometimes we did sometimes we didn't uh he would come in in the morning and run stuff if we had stuff for him to run very often I would be the one setting it up at night and then leaving for him to run. And then sometimes we would come up on a weekend and it was kind of a limbo a, because we didn't have enough customers to be there a lot. And it was kind of chicken and an egg problem. Like we didn't have enough customers to be there a lot, a lot. So we weren't motivated to be there a lot. So we weren't pushing to get any more customers. Mm, so we didn't have yeah. any work to be there. a lot. Yeah. <laughs> kind of thing. So early on, who, how were you getting customers and like, which was, were people approaching you like they are now, or was it more, you guys were just kind of like, who was getting more work 
would you say one of you was getting more work or was it just kind of like, Hey, we, I talked to this guy. He wants to make, he wants us to make some parts for him. That, that's how it was. Yeah. yeah. Uh, almost all of our initial customers were friends or old colleagues or people from school. We put made a post on Facebook in the very beginning that we both shared that was like, Hey, we started a shop. Here's some pictures of stuff we make. And we got a few jobs out of that from different people. Our first big customer was through Brad. It was a guy he had worked with that then went on to be like quality manager or something at this company. And so he knew that they were looking for someone to outsource to. Cool. How would you say, like, cause I mean, eight years is a long time to be working with somebody. How would you say that you guys have like grown together as over this time, you know, cause like you, like you said, he was very much a production guy and you very much weren't. And so you both had to kind of learn to do other things to make the business grow into what it is today. How, like, how has that looked for you guys and how has that been a bit of a struggle or like, and how have you, has it been man? I mean, obviously there's, there's always these, these weird things with growth, but like, have you was I'm assuming at the beginning it was more just like maybe like bickering or just kind of recognizing before you kind of got into like a flow about it? I think for the longest time it was just kind of us hanging out and so it wasn't a big deal. I think the mm-hmm. biggest places that we've grown are kind of melding of our personalities. So like Brad, when we first started hanging out and started the shop, was like super, super conservative with money and super, super avoidant of any risk. Mm-hmm. And, you know, very that way. And I was like, let's just throw money at the wall and let's <laughs> see where it sticks. And, yeah. um, and so we've both kind of crossed over into each other's business there. Like I'm yeah. much more conservative than I used to be and really think things through a little bit more. And on the same token, like, now say to Brad, like, hey, we need to buy a few grand of Lang stuff because I have this idea for this machine. He goes, yeah, whatever. Okay, sure. Do it. Whereas mm-hmm. like years ago, I couldn't imagine not having a serious like sit down discussion about that and like yeah. weighing the odds and seeing if that was something we should do. And so we've definitely both, I think, taken from each other. We saw we were missing and it, it really has helped us both, I think, grow the business, not staying stuck in our ways. Yeah. Yeah. So that, so in terms of skills, like you still, there's, you guys are, have grown into being more complementary to each other as opposed to like growing in the same lane and being parallel. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and like, I will fully admit that my work ethic was dog shit when we started the company. And like, I've very much turned that around and Brad has become a much better prototype machinist and, and very much, or less hesitant to just jump in and start programming stuff and, and making parts. And he's learned a lot about aluminum. Like he was, he was as scared of aluminum as I was of stainless steel when we started, which was always so funny to me because yeah. I was like, it's butter, dude. Like just throw tools in it and it'll work like for the most part. And he would be like, well, just go slow and it would work. Like, what are you doing? So yeah. that is, that is hilarious. Cause like aluminum is one of those things where it's like, you can fuck up so hard and it just works out like 
oh, I, my rapid plane was off by like a hundred thousand. So I just full sent this end mill into the material. It was fine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I just gave my part a buzz cut. It's okay. Yeah. Where, where like in stainless, that's a, that's a hundred dollars. <laughs> Easy. Yeah. But yeah, so I think we've both learned a ton from each other. It's been really good over the last eight years. Sick. How much we've learned. Nice. Coming up on 10, we'll have to do another special thing for that. For sure. So do we, when, when will we hear about the, the top golf trip for the C250? <laughs> yes. So we had a few people ask about that. Right now, it's all about when we can move. Like it just cannot happen in our current space unless we sold every single machine because we have a hundred amps into the, the suite. She's worth and it. It's like 88 probably for the Hermla or something like that. Yeah. So that'd be fine. Yeah. 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 Who needs more machines? You just need one good machine, right? It, that's exactly, that's exactly right. Exactly right. I definitely haven't had all three machines running all week. No, no, no. So on that note, this isn't a question, but do you want to talk about that? Oh, so I, I did. I can't remember if I did a little bit with Josh, but they, the place that was asking me a million questions just asked me two more yesterday. And then like two hours later, literally at the close of business, 5.30, they emailed my real estate agent and just said, oh, the cost of tenant improvements are too much. So this is not going to work out. It's like, cool. Thanks for wasting our time for months. And, and yeah. what was nice, I mean, I guess is that our real estate agent was just as pissed. Like he had me call him and he was like, I can't believe they screwed around this long and then still said no. And like bothered me is they never even brought forward what the costs were. Yeah. It's a cop out answer for sure. They just didn't want it. Like, like that was just the easiest way. Cause realistically it could have been like, they didn't even give you the option to front the money. Right. For you to be able to put in your own money, which makes it like they just they just didn't want you there. They got scared because of the floor or whatever, because they're idiots. (laughs) Probably. Yeah. And they're like, oh my God, they're gonna crack our concrete, which I've seen happen, to be fair. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, but not with a five thousand pound brother. No, not with a five thousand pound brother. It was an NHX four thousand, which is one of my least favorite machines I've ever I've ever ran, and it cracked the concrete. Yeah. And those are (laughs) chonky boys though yeah that is that's a big boy yeah (laughs) yeah definitely the brother but i mean the c250 you know maybe but it'd probably be fine still and we told them we had we would pour a new slab for that if we needed to Mm -hmm. like i mean i probably would have gotten i would have measured the concrete first which apparently they were unwilling to do or something but yeah you know yeah they're like, so, well, we'll just ask you 40 questions rather than just drilling into a corner of it and figuring yeah. out how deep it is. Yeah, right. Okay. So the, the process starts anew. Yep. Yeah, I, I sent another property over to my real estate agent last night. It's a little farther than Brad and I wanted to drive, but it's 5,200 5, square feet and okay. 500 amps of three-phase. Okay. Oh. It's already it already checks two of the boxes, and now we just need to see if it has AC or they're willing to put in AC. Yeah, um, it's, it's such a it's such a weird thing that people like in Arizona. It's like, can I put AC in this? And they're like, "Fuck you." Yeah, 
It's like yes. you realize that it's not a storage locker, right? Like people work here and you yeah. somehow don't expect them to want anything but swamp coolers. Yeah. Okay. Dude. Yeah. Like I worked, I don't know if I had ever brought this up before, but like my first summer out of college when I was in a shop in nor in like Deer Valley um, air park or whatever, but the swamp cooler went down. So we're just like in, that was the most intense. Um, that was so miserable. It's like just 110 degrees in the shop. You're just like, this is so miserable. <laughs> like this is yeah. a big ass fan and blow it on you. But even like a swamp cooler, like we have a swamp cooler in, in Utah and it doesn't get nearly as hot as Arizona. And it's still like, I just don't ever want to be in there. <laughs> yeah. It's well, it just makes terrible. it so humid. Like, yeah. It works only when you are right at like 10, 15% humidity. And then when it starts going north of that, it's just muggy and gross. And yeah, yeah, don't understand it. We'll find a place. I know we will, whether that means we end up having to save up a little more and buy a place or I don't know. There's not even yeah. that much inventory for buying places. Like I started looking yeah. at that last night because I was just so discouraged with finding a place to lease. And even then I was like, Man, all of this is like either garbage or like three million dollars. There's almost no in between. Yeah, you know, just build a place, I guess. I guess <laughs> take, it, yeah. take it to the next level, <laughs> right? Yeah, let's add <laughs> just, some more complexity. Just fuck it. Well, we're doing our own thing. Yeah, so we'll figure it out. But yeah, that's the latest update. Is that I cannot do anything with five axis until I have a new place so stay tuned we're i mean we're all waiting on bated breath for that seat <laughs> i mean really really everyone just wants that c250 to show up and see what I know. you do with it i've talked too much about it i am pumped my friend locally just got his c250 i think oh. it, his is the first new hermla in, in tucson in a long time yeah and he is very close to my shop so i'm planning on uh going over to his place a lot and playing on his c250 and learning a bunch Nice. Yeah, all the Hermelas are in Phoenix. That yeah, there's company. a ton. Yeah, well, and they're all at like one company. <laughs> yeah, SA. Uh, yeah, yeah, but they're dead as fuck right now because they're semi-con, so right. they're not making shit. They're, it's kind of, it's kind of upsetting. But they have like everything. They have Robodrills, I think. They have Matsuras. They have all yep. the Hermelies that you can think of, like every yeah. single one of them. Microns, they've got yeah. Brothers, they've got... There, yeah, so many machines it's insane yeah which is which is really indicative of the ebb and flow of um semi-con work because they're just like fuck it i need a machine right now yeah. um to make i, I mean parts. i heard and this is second hand but i heard that that's why they even ended up with the microns is that they were like hey we need two more cells and hermla was like oh we're six months out and yeah. they're like okay well micron says they have you know, two yeah. mil S units ready to ship tomorrow. So we're buying yeah. those. Yep. Dude, when, when Semicon is going, it's fucking going. It's crazy. Like 2018 was gangbusters for Semicon. And like it, it just, it's made a lot of people's 2019s really suck. Um, yeah. Well, and it's coming back now with all the chips bill money that's getting sent yeah. out everywhere. Yeah, you would think it it should be coming back at some point, but right now it's wicked down still. It's it's I know quite a few people who are 
who are impacted by it. Um, it's kind of a bummer. Yeah. Just goes uh, to show, you know, can't put your, all your eggs in one basket. Yeah. I don't know. Should we keep talking about work? Let's see. Actually, what is, I am kind of curious about what was the first bike you owned and your first car? Uh, first car was a hand-me-down 93 Camry. Love it. From my grandparents. And I absolutely destroyed that thing. I, well, like I would go tray drifting with it. I would do a ton <laughs> of e-brake turns. I would set up cones in like the uh, middle school parking lot and just like go do e-brake turns uh, and shit. I remember gosh. one summer I got new tires and I want to say in like the span of three months over the summer, I absolutely just roasted only one set of the wheels, like only the fronts because they were spinning so much and the rear spent most of their time locked up. And my parents were like, what did you do? And I was like, I don't know. I don't know how this happened. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's so funny, dude. What? Yeah, the and tray, then my f- tray drifting, dude. I that's hilarious. That's like straight up Fast and Furious era shit. I swear. Oh, a hundred percent. And it was like I got this piece of shit, and like I should have just been grateful. I should have been like, man, I got a reliable car. It's got a lot of life left in it. And I was like, yeah. no, let me just burn this thing to the ground if yeah. I can. Let me get let me get something better. Maybe if I get if I dump this, I could get my CRX, dude. <laughs> <laughs> And then my first bike was a uh, 92 CBR 600 F2. So it was still carbureted. I bought it from some guy. I didn't know any better. Like very sketchy house to buy it from. I want to say it was like a thousand bucks. It ran. He was like, oh yeah, I had issues with the lights. So I like put them on the switch. And then like the first time I ever took it to mechanic he goes oh so you like to run from the cops and i was like what are you talking about he's like oh you got a kill switch for all your lights i was like oh okay this is all making sense to me now so yeah that was my first bike it was fantastic i mean it was a pile of shit but it was also just super fun (laughs) that is so fucking wild dude oh my god jeez meth is crazy (laughs) (laughs) it is indeed And then I think you've told this on the podcast before, but your worst crash story was you like, you like broke your leg or you were in the hospital for a while or you like almost died or something. So I don't know. Is he talking about motorcycle crash or is he talking about uh, this yeah, machine crash? And this, Oh, that's a good question. This is also, I didn't say it was Josh, Josh Furman from Firmworks who I'm going to go see in a couple months. Uh, that is, let's do both. Let's do both. Okay. Yeah. So worst motorcycle crash. I got T-boned by a Nissan Titan 11 years ago, 12 years ago, something like that. Like it was, it's the only time I've ever, ever had a piece of paper where I was cited for doing the speed limit. It was fantastic. Like it was the only time I've been in zero fault. It was the, I was going south on this road that was two lanes and one lane was all backed up due to construction and I was going down the other lane and they had left a gap for someone to turn left across traffic. And rather than go into that first stop lane and looking again, he just gunned it and hit me. And I mean, I, I don't remember it all. I remember a light three miles beforehand 
And then my next memory is waking up in the ambulance and fight, trying to fight them off of me and them being like, no, 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 you've been in an accident. You need to calm down. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's like, we're not, we're trying to save your life right now, kid. Yeah. So that was by far my worst one. And actually I, I, I was hit hard enough that I blacked out. So I did the noodle thing and was yeah. really not as injured as I should have been. Like yeah. I broke a bone in my foot. I had some nerve damage in one of my arm for a little while some big you know cuts and stuff like down to the bone but besides that i was wearing gear i had a good helmet yeah i, I was you know you look at the bike or like i went and saw the bike and it was like an Nothing. l shape like the, the swing arm had like folded almost not quite 90 degrees but maybe 45 degrees off of the bike and seeing that i was like oh i i really lucked out like i so, i did okay yeah so he didn't directly or did did any part of the truck hit you directly? I couldn't tell you. Oh. Yeah, I guess that's true. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't tell you. Yeah, um, you don't remember that? Yeah. No, not at all. Damn. Um, nice. And then machine crash. I don't have any like amazing machine crashes that I've done. I've told the one on here, my first big crash was like running a shell mill into Jaws at like 100 inches a minute. That was, I think, that was my first crash and probably my worst. Yeah. To date, knock on wood, you know, I've seen a lot of crashes up close, like next to me that are much worse. But for the most part, like, you know, I've had stuff where like I forget my retract plane and snap a tool off on a bolt or, you know, the things that we all do, forget to set a tool. And that one was almost really bad. I was drilling a half inch hole in a part in the speedio that was standing up like six inches and it was late at night. This was like only when we had the X1 and I had forgot to set the tool and I don't know what it was about it, but I had just enough wherewithal in me that as I saw it coming down, it was like, that doesn't look right. And I hit the stop button just as the tip of the drill was rapiding into <laughs> the spot and it made like a terrible screeching noise yeah, because yeah, of that. Hope. But like it would have, I mean, full on it probably had three or four more inches to its retract plane before yeah. it would have done anything. So it was an almost crash, but thankfully not. Wow. Nice. I have three that I can think of Two, two were me directly. And one of them was just like, we were, we were troubleshooting somebody else's program. And when we got past the part that it couldn't, it was, this was on, it says, while well, I was working at South Bay, and we were on H plus 630, so pretty big horizontal, doing a laydown operation on a semiconductor part. And we were working through a probing routine. And I, it wasn't my program, but like the, oh, this was during COVID. So I was the, I was like the only programmer on site. And I was working with like the dude who ran the horizontals. And we just like couldn't get it to initially couldn't get it to go past a certain point. And then we finally got it to go past and we were like, yeah. And as we were like, yeah, just boom. And uh, the probe just full into the part. Cause he, when the, he meant to retract an inch, but he didn't retract an inch from where he was. He retracted an inch and the, the, work offset was the center of rotation so oh, it just no. so it pulled like we got it to go past where it was and then it probed like we wanted it to and we were like sick and then it was boom 
and just smashed it. Like you could see like, and the part was unrecoverable, which sucks. Cause that was like, that was like a 10 or $15,000 part. Oh, <laughs> it's an assembly. So like, but that is a main component. And like we, we tried, but like you could, it like imprinted the, the like little ring. You could kind of like read the Renishaw stuff in the, in the part itself. No way. Is, yeah. It was fucking nuts. And then the two that like the two worst crashes that I personally had were both on lathes. And Hey, I like, I'm still not too scared of them, but one of them was on an Akamura. One of them was on a, on an Akuma and they're fairly similar where no, they're yeah, close enough. I mean, it's sending the fucking turret into the, into something. So the first one was on a Nakamura and we're using like a double, it was like a dual insert boring bar. So it could cut, it had an insert on either side. And so we'd like drop down and like we'd face, we'd go below center first and face up and then come above and like come down to like chamfer. Mm -hmm. And, and I had just touched it off. And at the time I was using the face of the chuck to touch off tools and then I would put a value in the G54 to come out. And so I just touched it off and then I didn't put the value back. So the first thing it did was went to the face of the chuck and then straight down into the material, into the material, like a hundred percent rapid. Uh, that was, that was pretty sick. So I started putting like, I still do that same way. Um, I still do that like exactly. I just put G10 lines at the beginning of every program now. So if I do forget it, it the program will catch me. Um, and that's fine. And then the second one was on an Akuma where I crashed this machine so hard that it got, it was better after it was fixed. <laughs> <laughs> and it, we, I was showing somebody like one of there's, Akuma, like the OSP control has some like really interesting features. Like you can on MDI, there's like a running, a running, like a running list of the codes that you've ran. So you can kind of like scroll up and like go to a position. Like if you had been running the same things over and over again, like kind of start up and then like run it down. And I was like, yeah, this is pretty cool. This is one of my favorite features of this control. It's also one of the things where I found out that like, that there's a different tool table depending on which spindle is selected for that machine. And so I had this thing set for, I was using like tool four to come down and be a stop for the bar loader. So I just like smash into the turret, which is cool. And then it would set that, but I didn't have the main spindle selected. I had the sub spindle selected. And so I like, I just full sent the turret, into the spindle into the main spindle or the sub spindle boom and like knocked it like 80 thou off off the center or something um but it did did find a problem that we had the whole time which is like the only way like like so what what happened was it's something that we we knew we had the whole time because like when we'd grab the part on the transfer it would always mark it no matter what we did. It would mark it like, like not like, Oh, there's witness lines. Like this part is fucked up marked. And what was happening was 
like if you measured if you measured the concentricity of the spindles when they were both at home, well, the main spindle is always at home, but when the subspindle was at home, it was dead nuts. But as it would come out, the the B axis or the W axis on an, on an Akuma was coming at an angle, so it would like move the part, and so that got worse when I crashed it, and so they fixed it. And then this problem that we had been chasing for like a month just went away. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, so that's what I said. Like I crashed it so hard. I fixed it, <laughs> but those are, those are probably my two worst. Um, those are the three worst that I've seen that I've been a part of and around. And you know, that's, it's the cost of doing business, baby. <laughs> yeah. Lathe stuff definitely scares me. Like I've yeah. run a few lathes. I'm definitely by no means competent even, I would say. I could hack my way around one, but they definitely yeah scare the shit out of me. They're my favorite. <laughs> I, like even after all that, I still like I I love I love like especially the B axis stuff, like NTMX or the MX one hundred or whatever. Like the more turrets, the better. <laughs> like two spindles, three turrets. Like let's go, baby. That that shit's just so much fun. It's a lot of it's a lot of shit going on for sure. But like when they're cranking, and when you get that like process like really fucking dialed in, oof, nothing better, <laughs> nothing better. Love it. Yeah. Let's see what do we got? What do we got? A lot of these are basically the same, which is like, what would you do if you could do it again? Um, yeah, what would you do if you could do it again? All right. Yeah, so John at the shop uh, was asking that. Um, if I had to change career yeah. paths tomorrow, I don't know. I really don't know. I'm kind of, kind of deep down in this rabbit hole right now, but yeah. uh, I really don't know. I really do love, I mentioned it, I think, even the last part. I do love like media. Like I watch a lot of YouTube stuff mm-hmm. about like behind YouTube and like how they film and all of that. And I think that like social media, social media, but media creation is very interesting to me. Uh, as a kid, I was also really interested in like industrial design, like making, yeah, making the things that machinists make hate to make, you know, like, Oh, I've designed this super cool organic, housing for this shampoo bottle now make the molds for it have fun bye yeah but i'm not I'm not really sure what i would do if i change career paths i kind of love what i'm doing yeah i think the interesting thing we've kind of had this conversation a handful of times is that we have like an entrepreneurial spirit like you have an entrepreneurial spirit and you just happen to be a fucking manufacturing nerd you know so that's like that's how you're doing what you're doing now, but like if you were to start another business, what would that business be? You know, if it wasn't machining, like I could see. I mean, you bought that fucking camera, you know. That's a good one. That's yeah. That that is a fair point. Like I think no matter what I did, I would eventually make my own business out of it, just because yeah. I do love working for myself and I like kind of owning the full stack of like. I sell the stuff, I make this stuff or like I, I do, I do all the things. And so, yeah, I think you're right there that I would do that for sure. Yeah. Cause like your brain isn't like, if it wasn't manufacturing, your brain is still your brain and you'd yeah. just be like, 
fuck whoever I'm working for. You're <laughs> like, which is like a, which is rude. Cause like, I mean, we, we both had really good bosses. I'm positive of that, but it's also like, you just can't satisfy me. Like I can satisfy myself. Baby. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's a great way to put it. Uh, let's see. Oh yeah. He had also asked about five axis contestants. I mean, it's, basically it's Hermley at yeah. this point yeah like, like Let's you, not beat around you the talk bush. about you talk about your list your list is one fucking machine yeah. let's be real You're like, I, I, that is not <laughs> to say that i haven't spent time evaluating other stuff like especially at imts i went around and talked to a lot if micron had any reputation that wasn't just terrible service they yeah. would be in the running just because of sheer like financial wise like their, their machines are very well the, priced the E series is sick. Yeah. Like, I mean, I, I think at IMTS they had one of those with the pallet pool for like 460 or something yeah. like that. And that's like, and like, even on like, if you were to buy that now, it's like 500. And I think that's just one of those regional things, you know, because my, uh, uh, a methods customer who I did work with, they have like six plus K's or six or seven haverly plus k's but they also have like 15 microns all of them palletized you know and they're like and they love those things mostly like and like the difference between the plus k and the micron really for them is they love the heidenheim control because they're doing they do a lot of bone plates and shit like that where it's part families and the part family thing like the uh the dot h file how you can have like very specific like offset tables and probe tables and blah, blah, blah set up for every single machine, every single part in that control makes doing shit like that really fucking easy. And they're like, can Fanuc do that? And it's like, short answer is kind of <laughs> like, right, yeah. like the, I mean the, it's, it's like, yes, but it's complicated, you know, like that it's not built in the way it is built in. You can build, like, the nice thing about Fanuc is, especially on a robo-drill, you can build whatever the fuck you want into it, but, like, you also have to build whatever you want into it. <laughs> right, yeah. There, there's no framework to start. It is, yeah. it's writing a website from HTML. It's not going to Squarespace and, like, I, hey, I, I want a website. Exactly, which is kind of what you get with Heidenheim, where, like, you're a little bit more, like, they're not going to give you the same access to the control that you do get with Fanuc, but they also are going to give you a lot of functions that you don't, that for most, I would say like 99.9% of people, you're going to be fine. You know, unless right. you're, unless you're fucking Hadrian, you're like, you don't need those functions, <laughs> you know? Um, <laughs> but yeah, like anyway, that all that being said, yeah, it would be an interesting one to do to like experiment with, down the road once you're in five axis and you're like cruising be like yeah we'll try this one out what can especially when when you're in the position of trying to get they're trying to get your business you're like what do you got for me let's see what you got right yeah (laughs) yeah what can you do for me today yeah (laughs) for sure make me happy baby (laughs) you know daddy likes all right i am kind of curious about this one from cameron that's Patreon? Yep. Yeah, Cameron from the Patreon asked, how competitive is the business and is it hard to manage multiple contracts at once while machining? Um, and that's 
it's hard to, I, I would imagine, and I'm going to, sorry, I'm answering your question for you, but it's like, it's hard. I imagine it's hard to like judge how competitive it is. Yeah. Um, Cause you're busy. We're, we're super busy. And I don't know, like a lot of my friends, I think are my, could be my main competition. You know, like Easton and I swim in very similar waters sometimes, but yeah. we both are very specialized in what we do also. You know, and yeah. I think that he's uh, got again. Live. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And like, I think that this year really has emphasized that where like we are trying to be a specific shop to only attack specific needs. Mm-hmm. Like I think it was in Pumpkin Patch or Pumpkin Plan where he says, what is it? Don't be the best it's like don't be the best be different like be in your own league yeah yes and and yeah 100 percent. being niche is is where it's at for the most part i mean there's always like there's a big there's a big conversation around growth strategy that way but ultimately like makes so much more sense to just like hit the one thing like we're we're like for me, we're slowing way the, way the fuck down on automation and just focusing on like cutting because that's like what we're really good at. But for you, it's like it doesn't make sense for you to go out and try and get like high volume work. You're not really set up for it. And it just like murders your margins and is going to take like an entire spindle offline for like what, five or 10% margin? Like, yeah, what? Exactly. Like, and it's like you're not like it's like more consistent work, but it's like, it's longer work. That's long. That's like, I like long money versus like short money of what you're doing now. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm getting to the point where like, if a job takes me more than two or three days, yeah, I'm getting itchy. I'm like, okay, yeah. this is taking, this is taking up too much of my machine time on this mm-hmm. machine. I need to get this out here. Like, yeah. So I would be, I would kind of be curious. I like kind of going back to the earlier one. I wonder how Brad would answer this question. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Yeah. Well, like, he's definitely going to have to come back on and answer some, some of this stuff. But yeah, as far as how competitive it is, yeah, I, I don't really know. And it's not like, it's not like I'm ever hearing like, Oh, well we're placing the order with this person instead. Yeah. You know, you, so, you either get the work or you don't get the work, you know? Yeah. And why the work wasn't, why you don't get the work could be that they actually didn't need the parts at all. Or they just found somebody who is way cheaper or whatever. Right. Which is fine. Yeah. I've quoted it where I need to be. Yeah. I've thought about competition a lot. And like, I feel like there's realistically, like with, with the state of the industry, I don't think, I think we're more all part. It's a weird thing to say, but like we're all more partners than we are competitors. Cause there's just, there's more work then there are shops, you know, like, like there's always, nobody's like, Oh, I'm good. You know, like I don't need anything made ever. Like there's a dearth of shops or like not like an abundance of shops that I can just send all my stuff to. It's just like, not really where the industry is at. So you're, it would probably be worse if you were getting nothing, but you're so busy. That's like, who cares? Yeah. And And I find that if I can partner with other shops that are, like similar to me but other niches yeah they in turn will send me the work that's right for me like it's not like i get a ton of referral work but when i do it's because it's somebody that i've already dealt with that i send work their way because it's outside of our niche and they're like hey 
this is a protean part. Like I look at this and I think you guys, can mm-hmm. you take care of this? And it's like, sure. Which that's like, that's the place to be right. Not like, Oh, this is, I need not, I need a machine shop for this. It's I need protean for this. And that's yeah, exactly. And that's fucking hot. Oh, we it, lo- it's we love amazing. I think that that kind of goes back to my answer for like, will I launch my own product? And it's like, that's not a protean thing. Like yeah. I, I have, very much crystallized, I think, what Proteum means, at mm-hmm. least for the short term, and like makes it so easy to say no to stuff. Like you look at stuff and you're like, yeah, dude. That's just not me. Like it, yeah. it just not me today. I'm sorry. Or it's yeah. not it's not my company. Like yep. sorry. Yep. It's very that was an experience I had like this week actually or was it this week? Yeah, this week where guys had his machine, hasn't been his machine hasn't been running for like two years, you know? And it's like a million dollar piece of equipment that he bought brand new. Hasn't ran, hasn't made a single part in two years. That and, makes me shudder. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and, and it's like, it's, it's pretty like clear to me. He doesn't know how to run it and stuff. And he's like, I need help. And you're like, okay. And it's, and like you break it down and this is like why I break it down visually. It's like the programming side of it is like a third of what the actual cost is for us to do the work. And like half of it is just us being on site, getting it running. And then you like shoot that off. And it's like, this seems like a lot of money. I'm sure he's, it's like, like, this is what this, this costs to do business with us. And it's like, I don't know if he's actually going to say yes to this. And he didn't say yes to this. And he's like, Oh no, I actually know how to run the machine and set it up. I just need help with programming. <laughs> and that's like a red flag for me. Cause it's like, if I had a million, if I could program and I had Hypermel or Mastercam, he has both. And this machine and my million dollar piece of equipment that I know how to run and set up was just sitting there. I can't connect those dots, you know? Yeah. How there's you a can, lie in there somewhere, but where's yeah. the lie? And so it's like, Oh, I only need help with, with one thing. And it's like, and I came back to him and was like, we'll program for you if that's what you want. This is the price, but I'm, I need to go to your shop for at least one day to understand what I'm working with here and to make sure that on your end, you're set up, you know? And like, that's because knowing that he probably doesn't know how to use this piece of equipment, me just entering into, because we've done this before and this is how I know where it's like, we're fine. We're good. Like just send us, and it's like the, and then you get like zero feedback. It's like, well, you programmed with all these tools we don't have, and it's like, okay, so you could have said like, that's why I asked you for a tool library. You said you didn't. You said it's fine. We have whatever you need, and it's like, okay, I just we just stop. Like when it comes to the programming side of things, it's like if you don't have a program like a a tool library, if you don't have a fixture library, and I can't come to your site. to like make sure that on your end we have this, like then this isn't a good fit for us. Cause like, you're just going to be upset. You're going to spend a lot of money and be fucking pissed. And I'm never going to hear from you again. And you're never going to tell me why, but I know why I already know why. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Um, So it's just, Oh yeah. It's just finding those, finding those things, finding those things. I wonder if you should sell that as something different than like sell it as a add on. Like yeah. say we can program for you without tool holders, without collision avoidance, without any of this, or you can buy our assets package. And yeah. like the assets package is just paying for you to go and make assets pretty much. But yeah. then like 
they see assets and they're like, oh, I get something out of this. Yeah. It's it's kind of what I've been I've been really hammering the whole like solution thing, you know, instead of just like 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 oh we program stuff, we make stuff, whatever. It's like we provide I mean, our tagline right now is like manufacturing the perfect solution. I think like we're gonna mess with that a little bit, but like everything we do is trying to provide solution. Like if it's a fixture, that's a solution. If it's training, that's a solution. If it's a project, that's a solution. Not like, oh, we're programming parts because like it gets so nebulous so fast um, that it's just not worth it. Uh, like, like there's just sometimes where like money doesn't matter. You know, it's like, right. I'd rather, I'd rather not do this than, than enter into something that is going to make everybody upset. Yeah, exactly. You're experienced now where, you know, yes, this is what you're buying, but you're, not seeing all of our back and forths that's going to happen once I deliver and you're not happy with it. Yeah. So yeah, that makes sense. Oh, shoot. Yeah. Do we have, um, Garrett Wade asked, and I'm curious too, cause I've seen it sitting in the same fucking spot the last <laughs> couple of times that I've, I visited you. What is going on with the MR2? It, it has just been sitting. I think it will have been, a year in September that it's Oof. been sitting. So, it, I mean, I think I told it on here. It was stolen last September. Yeah. I got it back a month and a half later or a month later, something like that. And really just haven't had the heart to work on it. And then recently I was like, oh, you know, I want to just start working on it. And then it's 115 and it's like, well, that's not going to happen. So <laughs> yeah. um, maybe when we move. I'll bring up like actually not maybe when we move, I will very likely bring it inside wherever we move to. And I think having it inside will encourage me to at least get it back up and running and like, you know, get it the body panel undented that was dented by it and make sure that there's nothing else broken that they didn't find Mm -hmm. in the insurance adjustment. So we'll see question then on that note. Um, when, because you're talking about getting quite a bit of space and possibly, you know, bringing the MR2 inside and whatever, like, would you get a lift? We've, we've talked about it. <laughs> yeah, you I have. Will say that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, cause I mean, you've seen the mechanic next to us. He now has a, a real two posts lift, but in his original bay, he has one of those mobile lifts yeah. that you can kind of push out of the way and stuff. And they're not terribly expensive yeah. and it wouldn't, you know, you could push it up against the wall when we're not using it, but then still have something to lift our cars. That's pretty nice. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah. very likely we'll end up with something like that. I think you get those long run times. Exactly. And you, guys are yeah. all, and you guys have all your tools set up and you're all programmed and like ready to go. And it's like, well, I guess we'll just go fucking turn some wrenches, baby. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It would make it so easy for me to at least start on the engine swap if I had a lift and my car was inside, you know, like yeah. I could go loosen everything and then come in on a Saturday and drop the motor and transmission. It's like, cool, mm-hmm. done. Um, yeah. Yeah. I can't believe you're not even thinking about putting it inside. Now you have that whole open space, all that open space right by the door. Yeah. The open <laughs> space filled with tool grinders and the Freddy and my chop saw. And oh, don't forget about your, your, new barrel <laughs> yes my new water add. barrel 
wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Can't drain my AC into the parking lot because I'm going to ruin the pavement. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Super fun. Can't wait to move. Yeah. Oh, brother. So coming to the end, nice, nice, quick, breezy. How did you, how did you get started into machining from Tuck's Garage? I got started into machining because I was a failed engineering student is the, the short answer of it. I was 18, stupid, going to college for mechanical engineering, not really going into class, skipping class a whole bunch and mm-hmm. dropped my GPA to the point where the engineering college said, hey, you can't be here anymore. You need to go raise your GPA at Pima Community College and then come back. And I went there and saw machining. I needed an elective just to fill time, saw machining. Uh, again, like my whole backstory is just full of me being so naive. I they, they had it in the thing. It's like Mac 100. And then there's something like, oh, you can take a test. And if you pass the test, you can skip Mac 100 and go to Mac 105, which is like the next step. Mm-hmm. And I just looked at the test. They had it online. And like the first thing was like, how do you read a micrometer? Like, what is this micrometer reading? What is this? And I was like, oh, I don't know any of this. I guess I'm taking Mac 100. Yeah. And just fell in love. Like I was like, oh, this is super cool. I'm going to stay and get my manual machining certificate and I can use it to make money while I go back to engineering school. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, there's this thing called CNC. Well, I'll get my CNC certificate after a year and and go back to school and, and earn money that way. And then I was already in it. And I was like, well, I'm going to finish this out. Obviously, I'm going to get my associates. And so I yeah. did. I found a job while I was there at a shop locally, started programming parts after a couple semesters of Mastercam class. And yeah, haven't looked back. Looked back. Bob's your uncle, baby. Yep. I think you're fine. I, th- I like I go back and forth on that a lot about the whole engineering school thing. Cause I mean, I have like two engineering degrees or whatever, but like I don't really use them ever. Like, you know, I think the only thing that it does is it teaches you how to think. Yeah. Like it just, it just gives you like a structure for solving problems, which if is I obviously back, helpful. I would go back just to be a completionist and be like, I started something. I really want to finish it out. And I sure. do eventually want to finish it out. I just, yeah. That is not a near-term goal at all. Yeah. It's kind of funny to like think about doing something. Like you'd essentially be doing it just to do it, you know? (laughs) Like 100%. Like like, fuck it. Because I I said I would. Um, Nice. Favorite ice cream flavor? I like mint chocolate chip stuff. So I'm big on that. Okay. Any kind of mint or chocolate. Oh, and then also fish food by Ben and Jerry's. I love. It's like chocolate and marshmallow and dark chocolate chunks. I like nice. that a lot. There, dude, like, uh, there was this fucking like boutique ice cream shop that might have got taken out by COVID called Big Gay Ice Cream out of like New York. <laughs> and they had some fucking killer flavors. If you can ever, actually, I'm going to look that up. Big Gay Ice Cream. Now they're still around. Dude, they have some like absurdly good flavors though, but they're in the Northeast. All right. Um, I'll have to make, next time I make the trek out to the Northeast. Yeah, the pilgrimage. Yeah. So we're coming to the end. What's been popping up in your browser, buddy? Man, Uh, lots of more real estate research, trying Mm -hmm. to figure out what the hell is going on and where we might be able to move. Maybe, uh, trying to think of what else oh i went to have you seen the the ads for the van gogh experience 
nah. that keep popping up on. So they do this like immersive Van Gogh thing that I guess has been traveling the country and they've got like a few rooms with like prints of his thing and a bunch of his story behind it. And then a few of the rooms have 3D sculptures that then they reproject his paintings on. So like they'll have like a vase and Uh, some of the flowers and then it'll project multiple different versions of his flowers and vases because he's painted like 30 of them of different flowers and stuff. And then there's an entire room that every single wall and the floor has a projector pointing at it. And they have like a moving version of a lot of his most famous paintings that like morph from one to the other. So it's like a starry night and then like starry night over the whatever river it is blanking on what it is. And then it goes through like his self portraits and whatever. And yeah, my, my wife and I went to that last weekend because I found some tickets and it was pretty cool. It was, you sure, know, worth dude. it wasn't super expensive and it was a fun date and nice neat to see for sure. That's fucking rad. That's so cool. What about you? Uh what have I been? I mean, I just googled Big A ice cream to make sure that they're still <laughs> in business. So I did that. I can I don't think I could beat that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> what have I been researching? I've just been kind of like cranking away at this turnkey, you know, um, that's, that's mostly all I've been working on how to, Oh, you know, like are hobbit feet desirable to sell pictures of, you know, stuff like that. How to, (laughs) 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 uh, no, but yeah, just, just, just like, I'm probably, I think I've been, I think I sent a picture of my van to you and Alex. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, got, I'm probably going to start working on that, especially like being like a little cash strapped. Like I have a bed in the back of that thing. Maybe I'll just start driving that fucking thing around and already drive like a maniac. So uh, yeah, it, it kind of makes, makes sense for a lot like of your stuff. That's why I bought it. And then I just kind of sat for a little bit or sat for like three years. <laughs> like it has no dash in it right now. Um, but like it, it runs, it drives. It's, it, it's a fucking like six, two Detroit diesel. It's a dog. Like it's an absolute fucking dog, but it gets like 20 miles to the gallon for that big ass van. Whoa. That's yeah. really good. Yeah. It's, it's awesome. So it'll get me places. Um, that's and like, just like looking at things for that kind of like cheap things that I can do to, get that thing because it's like a fishbowl right now to make it not a fishbowl but also not like this thing looks like somebody's cooking meth in the back of it because it's not the most appealing looking van i would say (laughs) (laughs) yeah it definitely has that that feel of yeah potential seedy underworld (laughs) yeah depending on who owns it yeah depending on like how i'm dressed i look like a real jack wagon you know (laughs) And then, oh, I guess little drop for, I have been, I mean, a lot of actually like a lot of change management stuff and kind of like plugging the next book that we're going to do. Yes. So Um, the next book, the next book club book, it's going to be Chris, Alex, and me all talking about it. And what is it called again? Leading Change. Leading Change by... by John Cotter. There you go. It's a quick one. It's like a five or six hour audiobook. Um, 
fucking Alex Kern is going to read it and i guess you are too you maniacs i've already read no, it like, i'm listening to it okay, i'm like I, an hour into it yeah i read it like twice already <laughs> yeah we're the maniacs okay so just a, yeah. a little behind the curtain here chris alex and i are on a group chat and we decide on this book and then literally maybe like 28 hours later chris goes all right i'm done what, <laughs> yeah. when are you guys gonna be done and i was like yeah. you nutcase like well, what are you doing yeah well i don't take notes you know, so I just read it a lot and then you take notes and then I, and then I remember what to say <laughs> based on, <laughs> based on how the conversation flows. Yeah. So far it's pretty good though. It, it's not at all what I thought it was going to be. Like you said, change management. And so I thought it was going to be like, here's how to commit processes to paper no, and th- blah, blah, blah. That is, that is more ad car. The other, like ADKAR, A-D-K-A-R, which is like knowledge, desire, um, awareness, desire, knowledge, blah, 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 something else. I don't remember. Is more of a framework where there's like workbooks and like all these like different levels to it. And you can go to like seminars. This is more of a, of like, I would say the psychology and like more of the why behind change management than like then the whole like then the whole oh yeah this is how you do this type of thing which i think makes it more it's a very good way to digest and get introduced to the concept of change management which is something that we've all really realistically we've all n- know is is very necessary to like every business but right like and it gives you like terminology and a, and a way of thinking about these things happening. Yeah. I guess is that more people listening have been a part of a bad change implementation 100%. or one that is incomplete or fails than ones who have gone through it successfully. Cuz like I'm listening to this and the yes. examples he gives I'm like, oh, man, I've li- I've lived that. Like that the, that sucked. Dude, the the there's a there's more. Dude, there's there's a, there's like the one early on that really stuck out to me is the CEO that that has all these little conversations and then goes away and makes a decision on his own. And that's like almost every boss I've ever had, which is super annoying. And then the an example later on is the guy who um like, oh, we need to we need to number one goal is number one goal is like speed of getting jobs done for the customer, whatever, whatever. But they're, but they take forever to approve change orders, to approve finances, to approve whatever. And their actions not meeting what their desires are in that hypocrisy. Um, But yeah, there it's, that's a lot of like, yes, I feel this so deep in my heart. Yeah. It's much less dry than it, sounds if you're listening to this and you're like change management sounds like an absolute snooze fest that is how i felt too and then i started listening and i was like oh this is actually you know not at all what i thought it was gonna be yeah yeah yes thank god (laughs) yeah Um, yeah yeah i was like because the ad car stuff i think was sounds important but it did sound like it was like oh you know, if I thought principles was dry, then Adcar uh, is going to, I'm going to be a desert would, by the end of this. Yeah. Especially cause like you have to buy, there's no, there's no audiobook for Adcar stuff. It's, it's, you're reading that book and it is a snooze fest for sure. Um, <clears throat> so. 
All right. Well, pick up the book. We will read it and, you know, get back with you guys at some point here in the next month or so. Yeah. Thank you all for listening. First of all, thank you, Chris. And thanks to Josh earlier. Please go check out their stuff. Chris, where can they find you online? Where can they find me? Yeah, you. Um, Dude, I have three Instagrams now. (laughs) (laughs) I got Zap, like two of them are pretty much just placeholders and we're going to start putting stuff there. So like Zapworks with an E, Z-A-P-W-E-R-K-S for fixture stuff, Skill Gap Inc. for training stuff, and then Zap.Consulting for everything else. That's the main one though. You can, I have conversations with people on all of them, (laughs) but yeah. Awesome. So go check out Zap if you guys want some training. He is the one that I'm going to lean on when I start hiring people. So please do that. Go check out precision microcast with Josh and Adam. Go check out NH micro. Thank you all for listening. Thank you for 200 episodes and being such a great community. And here's to another 200. Not 200 more baby. Yeah. Thank you so much. And I'll be back next week.